1: Hello. Season 4 of Discography was completed in 2019, but due to circumstances beyond our control, as well as many, many, shall we say, life roadblocks for the host, that's me, Mark with a C, it was not feasible to release the initial edit at the time. As discography is now a self-contained, fair-use production, a completely re-edited version of this season was finally completed in 2020, so please don't be thrown off by the various dates of recording that'll be thrown about in the episodes. This season was a long game, and it's a bit of a miracle that it was resuscitated at all... We intend to try to keep discography going and felt that the wait for this season was so excruciatingly long with moved and missed release dates, we wanted to give you what exists as soon as possible so we can move on to the next phase for discography. And we thank you for your support, patience, and your understanding. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. I'm not only a lifelong record geek and not only the host of this show, but I've also been releasing lo-fi pop records independently for 20 years now. Discography is a show where we look at a great artist through the lens of only their canonical albums of first release material to see who they really are and how it all stacks up. Discography aims to educate and inform those listeners who really want to know. All opinions are that of the person that said them because everything is subjective, right? Discography can also be a really personal journey for me, your host, which you should know up front, and this season, we are jumping into the catalog of one of the most mysterious yet malleable and powerful bands of all time, Black Sabbath. So where can you even start when talking about Black Sabbath? The beginning seems like an obvious enough place, but it's worth mentioning why, because let's face it. That first album by Black Sabbath seemed to kind of come out of nowhere and flip everything that hard rock could ever possibly be onto its head at that very second. And sure, heaviness had existed in varying forms in rock music in the years leading up to that record. A little Helter Skelter here, a little bit of I Can See For Miles there, some Steppenwolf and the like. There'd even been shameless occult vibes from groups like Coven, who by the way, the first song on their first album is called Black Sabbath. But the first Black Sabbath album is the moment where a large portion of the world decided that a new genre of music had been born and they dubbed it heavy metal. Now me, what do I consider Black Sabbath? I'm gonna level with you. That question is kinda why I'm doing the season. I'll go you even one better. Genres, they're increasingly meaningless to me as I age, but I'll tell you, I never much understood what separated varying forms of heaviness into all the subgenres. My mind just didn't work that way. Your grindcore, your power metal, and if it's black metal, it must be like this, all that stuff. To me, if it was heavy, it was just heavy, right? It's just the way my mind works. Probably my own hang-up. But importantly, Tony Iommi, the sole member of Black Sabbath to see the band through every single twist and turn, he says that Black Sabbath's a hard rock band, and I'm the kind that's inclined to side with the creator. But I also gotta say that the mob makes really good points. Though you know what they say about listening to the mob. The main thing is I'm not touching the whole did Black Sabbath start heavy metal argument with the freaking space needle, you can't make me do it. I wanna focus just on what's on these records, but all of these records, because that's what matters. Without all of these differing albums, lineup circumstances, members, and phases, all those arguments over whether Ozzy's the better frontman or Dio or Ian Gillen, they couldn't exist. And come on, if you're listening to this, you know those arguments are kind of fun to have, right? So with that in mind, I went at this season with the following question in the forefront of my mind to keep me on track and on point, and that question is as follows. What is Black Sabbath? Now, before you start yelling at the speakers in the podcast, first of all, I can't hear you. So secondly, hear me out. Sure, everyone knows Iron Man, and anyone plucked off the street, if you just played it for them and they'd never heard it somehow, they'd probably call it a heavy metal song. But then you take any song sung under the name Black Sabbath by, say, Tony Martin, right? And you play that next to any Ozzy era tune, and it becomes clear that the frontman role doesn't really define Sabbath all that much. Every new vocalist seems to start some manner of a musical facelift that's always identifiable as Black Sabbath, but whatever direction they go in tends to be far less predictable than just taking a look at whoever's holding the mic for, and I think the band needs a lot more credit for that. And that's what I wanted to get to the bottom of. See, here's where I come to you hat in hand and tell you that for many years I was one of those people that didn't really want to know unless Ozzy was on vocals. My only real exposure to the Dio era was through Live Evil, a not-exactly-beloved live album, and it was so far from what I thought I was getting into that I just up and decided I did not like it, so the whole era must be a wash. You know how you think as a stuck-up teenager, and you can bet your sweet bippy that I stayed real stuck-up in the ensuing years, too, but I also secretly wanted to find that buzz. That drive that kept Tony Iommi feeding his musical beast. And the buzz so strong that Dio became so passionately defended every time I got into one of those silly music geek arguments that we all take way too seriously, but they're so fun. I mean, I knew it had to be quality. I just didn't get it yet, but I wanted to. So here's how I've gone about this season. I, Mark, I was born in 1978, so I didn't really have a grasp on what fans knew and when they knew it. I'd have to start from the very beginning and learn the entire history of Black Sabbath chronologically if I wanted to truly get it, or at least understand it on my own terms, some manner of what this saga must have felt like to the fans who lived through the changes as they happened, instead of seeing their career as just one big pile of hindsight that I could pick and choose an era from. In my journey, I made a decision on how we'd do this season. See, with so many lineup changes, it's obvious that I was gonna run into a lot of drama. As such, I started to see the eras in forms of rising and falling dramatic action. In slightly simpler words, this discography is a lot like theater. I believe that there are three acts for Sabbath that don't necessarily stop and start when one might predict, but it comes with a hell of an encore. I'll tell you this much up front. Act 1? It's all vibe. Oh sure, the guys are talented. So they kicked off that way, but everything in Act 1 seems to hedge on the feel, on the well, the the vibe. If you've ever heard anything from just the first four Black Sabbath albums alone, you know what I mean. No rock band creates an atmosphere better than Act 1 Sabbath. Act 2, that's where the technical experimentation starts to kind of give way to attempts at technical precision, but still tries to keep that vibe present. And Act 3, That's where technical precision started seeming to be the way of the walk, hitting the notes properly and efficiently, but a little bit less emphasis on the patented early reliance on vibe, tone, and feel. In short, Black Sabbath is kind of the ultimate right-brain, left-brain musical challenge. I started to completely understand where every faction of the various Sabbath fandoms were coming from, and sure, by the end, there were periods that I liked more than others, like anybody else would, But I think you'll be genuinely shocked as to how certain infamous records in their canon would resonate with me, and if you're ready to stick around and take the ride with me, I'm excited to share it with you. Black Sabbath was formed in 1968 in Birmingham, England. Four relatively skint lads got together to make a heavy blues band under early names like Earth and the Polka Tuck Blues Band. You had Bill Ward on drums, one of the most inventive rock drummers to ever pick up a pair of sticks. We're going to be talking about him a lot. Geezer Butler on bass, an Irish Catholic cat weaned on teenage fascinations with the occult and even some classical music, which would arguably the combination that really brought the group to life. A self-described petty thief on vocals named Ozzy Osbourne with an incredibly unique and soulful voice, but with just enough nasal tones that you could also make comparisons to the singing voice of one John Lennon far more appropriately than you'd think. And on guitar, Tony Iommi. Born in February of 1948, he was into the guitar, but on what ended up being his last day working at a sheet metal factory, Tony would inadvertently have the tips of the middle and ring fingers of his right hand severed. And as he's always played guitar left-handed, this severely handicapped what he could do on a fretboard. He snapped out of a deep depression after hearing Django Reinhardt, who'd become a master jazz guitarist after suffering some similar injuries around the same age. So he put his nose to the grindstone, building brand new fingertips out of crude materials, literally. He'd work tirelessly to get things like vibrato and sustain just right while being unable to actually feel the strings. And take it from this guitarist, what he did was no mean feat, bordering on genius himself. I'm amazed that he had the stick to to get through it because I can't even begin to imagine that frustration. And we haven't even gotten to a single freaking song It's safe to say that it's a good thing that Tony did all of that, because otherwise he'd have never joined Jethro Tull. No, really, he was in Jethro Tull for a while. He didn't like the hours, but it helped him cut his teeth and see just how much time and work was really going to be necessary to be as good as he had hoped. And without these early obstacles and the ensuing discipline, Black Sabbath would surely have been a completely different group altogether. The group released its first album, the self-titled Black Sabbath album, in 1969, and we're going to dive right in in a few moments, but let's talk about the impact first that carries on to this very day. We're going to talk to a few people this season, a few that you're really not expecting, a couple I'm very excited for. There's a group in Orlando, Florida that, upon first listening, you might not maybe peg them as being highly influenced by Black Sabbath, But once you dig, oh man, they are, and their name is Milk Carton Superstars. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, my stage drummer is also the drummer and vocalist and main lyric writer for the band Milk Carton Superstars, but it allowed me some time to talk to someone else who, well, he got to grow up in the era of Dio being it, and Ozzy's solo career was also it, so I definitely wanted to know what he thought, but also, he and I, we are totally, 100% Team Bill Ward. And with him being a drummer, and always interestingly influenced to play rock and roll by the jazzier drummers, I really wanted to know how he got into it, how it impacted him. And basically, I wouldn't I needed a drummer to help me explain what Bill Ward does because you cannot explain what Bill Ward does. The same problem exists that I was talking about in season three with The Who. The same, if you got to explain swing, you're never going to understand it. But here I am trying to do the impossible. Jim, please introduce yourself.
2: I am Jim Myers, and I am the vocalist and drummer uh, for Milk and Superstars. I should start by talking about my introduction to Black Sabbath. Um, And uh, growing up um, in Orlando, Zeta 7 was the rock station. And so I was familiar with Paranoid and Iron Man because it was in the, the pantheon of rotation of, uh, of Zeta 7 classic rock and, and contemporary rock at the time. But anyway, that was, that was my first uh, inclination as to Black Sabbath, but it was just along the lines of a bunch of other things I was listening to on the radio. And uh, then in high school, um, you know, this was the era of heaven and hell and mob rules. And so people who were into Black Sabbath were were kind of opening that door for me with those albums. And so that was my actual introduction. My first purchased Black Sabbath album was actually mob rules. Um, So. I came into it, and it took me a while to, to to go back to the source and realize that the band that I was sort of getting to know was really not the the Black Sabbath that that the world knew first. So then I went back and uh, started listening to the the early albums, and still to this day feel like the the sweet spot is is from the first album through Sabotage. That's really the stuff I love the most. The thing about Bill Ward that 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 got my attention um, was the swing, and um, you know I, I I'm not a, a metal guy specifically, or even a hard rock guy. I love it, uh, so I wasn't looking at um, Bill Ward as you know another in the in the in the great names of hard rock drummers or, or whatever. Um, I love um, I love Buddy Rich. I love Gene Krupa. I love. You know Keith Moon and, and all sorts of drummers I've, I've just been a fan of great drummers Since I was a little kid And Bill Ward spoke to me in that way It was, it was apparent that this wasn't just A rock drummer It was somebody who, who brought a little something else To a rock band And um, To me that, that's a very Significant part of The sound of Black Sabbath In that or- original lineup I should say You feel it right away on the first album Wicked World is you know that's that's pretty apparent what's going on there bill ward is bringing them through angles of american jazz throughout this heavy heavy song about you know basically apocalyptic scenes um and that's unique you know how might how might have John Bonham approached that bombastically, you know, very loud and very, very proficiently. But but Bill is bringing something else to it. And it it meshed in my mind with, you know, this this riff machine that Tony Iommi was. And um, that's that was the magic for me. And that's why those early albums that that grabbed my attention and, and held held it forever, really. I I get a feeling like this sometimes. It's it's as if you you can hear what he's not playing, but you feel that energy. You feel um you know you everybody knows what a ghost beat is. You know, like a drummer has got the downbeat or, or he's he's hitting the three or whatever, but he's also hitting like something just off of that. Like it's almost as if the stick is bouncing. And it's intentional. It's but it it to me as a drummer, that's for the drummer. That's to lock you into the feeling. You know, the band only needs you to play those four beats, but for you to play those four beats and really feel it, you're going to need six or seven um, to go within the four. And I feel that in Bill Ward's playing, even when I don't hear it, I can I can sense that that's what's going on. You can find out lots more about
1: his group at milkcartonsuperstars.com. It'll reward you, but hey, you're here, I'm here. We're here to talk about Black Sabbath. There's no time like the present. Let's kick off act 1 right now. Sabbath album was recorded in late 1969, released to an unsuspecting public in February of 1970, and rarely, if ever, in the history of recorded music has a band come out of the gate so fully formed, so out of the norm, and so inspirational. Hell, one could even argue that the song Black Sabbath, which opens the album called Black Sabbath by the group Black Sabbath, is, well, it could be Arguably all that you'd need and you'd win that argument because it's a stupid thing to argue But it's a fun thing to argue, but it would also have a teensy bit of merit And I couldn't really argue back that said you could win the argument But you'd lose the war because you would deprive yourself of 40 years worth of variations on what heavy records can be So I'll tell you up front all you need is right here. Really. I could also say the same about the first two albums or the first four or the first six or all of them, but if you've only got four minutes to spare and you wanna really understand hard rock, this is the album I'm gonna throw on for you, period, full stop. We could spend hours alone picking apart that title track, built off of a modified riff from the Mars portion of Holst's Planet Suite, and arguably the very beginning of doom metal but again i'm not going to get hung up on who invented which genre when that said anyone would be hard pressed to find some rock and roll that better encapsulated pure dread and terror based solely on the first few notes not impossible no but not easy either when those notes get a little bit quiet one notices that this band devoid of click tracks is getting by on pure feel and then That voice,
3: what is this that stands before me? Figure in black, which
1: Ozzy Osbourne might have seen himself as nothing more than a young troublemaker at the time, but this more chesty version of his singing voice was the perfect blend of blues, vibrato, and the everyman, meaning that no matter how radical and off-the-wall the band's lyrics could and would be, Ozzy was always there with some manner of reality, normalcy and believability with his very, well, human voice. Now often, Ozzy would sing nonsense lyrics in the studio, Bassist Geezer Butler would write some lyrics to better tell a story, but more often than not, while Tony and Geezer were certainly the riffmeisters, and Bill Ward was all the feel, Ozzy was to these ears the guy that really got the short end of the stick for being pretty damn melodic. I mean, he invented these melodies. Remember, there wasn't really a template for this stuff at the time. So Tony might lay out a riff, Geezer would write a lot of those same root notes to thicken up the tone at the time, Make it heavier. Bill and Geezer together would make it swing, but what should a vocalist have done there? You either go angry or you go melodic. And Ozzy made the swift and brilliant choice to layer melodies and eventually counter melodies very cleanly over the top, and that, my friends, is the formula for one of the most terrifying second verses in the history of music. written after an actual mysterious figure in black appeared at the bedside of at least one band member. And, of course, they basically reinvent some of the things that they'd been doing with the Devil's Triad for a second act in the very same act that pushes along with a newfound sense of urgency. And I'm telling you now, if this doesn't hook you from the get-go, entertainment simply might not be your thing.
3: People running cause they're scared be better go anywhere. no, no, please,
1: no! So look, the stories are pretty much true. Roger Bain produced this album in about two days. Black Sabbath set up just like they were playing a live gig, they were recorded as such. They tossed on a few overdubs on the second day and bam, a rock classic that nobody even thought all that hard about was born. It'd probably be the last time that anything with the Black Sabbath name attached was relatively stress-free, by the way. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, and I definitely am when I touch on this. Don't worry, I'm going to touch on it a little bit more later. Depending on which country your copy originates from, the Black Sabbath debut, of course, you're either going to have a song on the B-side called Evil Woman or a song called Wicked World. Though I've seen knockoff editions that contain neither, I saw like a truck store tape version that jumbled the order beyond all recognition, and frankly, no matter how many times I've personally played this album over the years, I'm not even 100% crystal on which song ends where. It's pretty easy to figure out in the first half though. The song called The Wizard is a cool bluesy stomper led by far more harmonica than you'd probably anticipate, and well, this thing's basically just a love letter to Gandalf. There's just no getting around it. Eat your heart out, Zeppelin. There's another loud rock band in town, and they've got a library card as well. Wikipedia argues that it might also be about the band's drug dealer, but I feel like that might be putting the cart before the horse at this juncture, pun intended. I mean, look, I wasn't in the room. I don't know anything privileged. But this album still sounds like it's highly inspired by brown ale blues rock, and besides, when the band moves on to other drugs, they ain't shy about telling you completely directly in the lyrics, so I'm going with Gandalf. But then, at least on the CD copy that I've got closest to me, we get a medley of a track called Behind the Wall of Sleep, then a Geezer Butler bass solo, and N.I.B. Interestingly, some copies claim that the intro to this whole medley is called Wasp, and there's... God, there's a fair bit of that in the Sabbath catalog, at least in the early years. And I'm not 100% on if we ever really decided what's going on with that kind of thing. For that reason, I might get it wrong. But for the most part, if I do get it wrong, this will all hopefully be easy enough to understand as I refer to the bigger piece. But let me explain why this is even a thing, all right? Okay, let's pretend for a second that you're yes. Uh, you have just put the finishing touches on the song close to the edge close to the edge is like 20 some odd minutes right like at least 18 so if a freeform fm radio station plays it technically they only have to pay to play the one song but 20 minutes of the programming was yes So the only way to really get properly compensated was to break those down into smaller pieces. Therefore, you had to be paid for every individual movement. At least, I think that's maybe what's going on here. I know that it's why some other groups did it, and I'm merely assuming that it's why Black Sabbath did it. But as I stated before, I don't know anything inside about this record. If you're waiting for me to, like, blow your mind with... A piece of information you've never heard about the Black Sabbath debut, forget it. There's not really a whole lot to tell you, other than, you know, depending on where you bought it, it might be a little different than your buddy's copy. Moving on. Behind the Wall of Sleep might actually be one of my favorite cuts here. Not only am I a total sucker for a good drum break, and not only do the stereo effects on Ozzy's voice send my head spinning, but just overall, there's something about the feel and vibe on display that just really does it for me, and it'd be pretty easy to gather that this is a direct, lyrical nod to Lovecraft, but some Sabbath faithful argue that it's an allegory about opium, and look, I get it, right? Sabbath music is druggy as hell, especially in the first act, but these cats barely had two nickels to rub together at this stage in the game, so I'm assuming that all four being well versed in the joys of pure opium rather than say heroin is generally going to be a bit of a stretch. I've seen at least one fan even allude to thinking that this swing and track is about the effects of the morning glory plant, which, you know what, that one's almost plausible, but is it likely? No. Simply put, No matter how much this album shook up once it was widely heard, overt drug references still scared record labels in 1970 for the most part, unless you were friggin' John Lennon on the whole. Sabbath would have to do a bit more proving themselves before they could get away with such moves, but only a touch. Back to the album, Geezer rips a killer P bass run with the thickest tone being run through a wah-wah, which eventually turns into the lead riff for the timeless classic N.I.B. seriously if you can play a guitar at all play the main riff to nib at a party without warning and then stop like And then a whole bunch of people will automatically yell Aussies, oh yeah, and boom, you've just made a whole bunch of new drinking buddies and you know they've got good taste in music. It's not the simplest song in the world, but it's a bit more straightforward than the average Sabbath tune has been, even lyrically, even up to now and we're only still inside one of the first record. What at a first glance might seem like Lucifer falling in love is eventually shown to be a trick lyrically that Lucifer was manipulating his subject all for the purpose of yoinking yet another soul, but at its barest essentials, it might be the quintessential Black Sabbath track. It has nearly everything that anyone ever mentions about the group in one place, plus it just rules in a really, really hard to describe way, doesn't it? Again, depending on the origin of your copy of the Black Sabbath debut, not only are the places where the tunes begin and end indexed in a slightly different way, but you might have at least one completely different song altogether. See, my U.S. copy has a song called Wicked World. In fact, so did the cassette copy that I grew up with, the 2010 Rhino LP, and the 2016 CD remaster. As a matter of fact, since I knew the old story about how they recorded the album live in one day, mostly in single takes... I thought that this was a deal where the band just kept playing, but the producers didn't necessarily know where songs truly began and ended. There's a lot of stopping and starting, you know, on the second half. But that's not the case, though. See, some countries got a pre-album single to open the second half called Evil Woman. It was already done by a band named Crow, but the rest got that song's B-side Wicked World, and I'm sure that some copies might have ended up with neither, some might have ended up with both, just based on the confusion I've seen with this. (laughs) I can't imagine the really straightforward and relatively poppy Evil Woman Don't You Play Your Games With Me working as well, before what I like to refer to as the album closing Warning medley. With the track Warning itself originating from Ainsley Dunbar, but anyone who grew up with it on the album probably feels the same way about Wicked World. In truth, I don't know which copy is right, but as my understanding is that the band didn't even really want to record Evil Woman at all, the Wicked World version is the proper one in my eyes, only bolstered by the fact that Wicked World stayed in their concert set list for a damn sight longer than the other tune ever did. But see, Side two is a neat little beast. Rhythms come and go as the band will fade out and let Tony Iommi take the entire spotlight, and this happens enough times that you eventually get the picture. Tony runs this goddamn show, but we're all better for it. He even took to performing center stage, which is the spot that most bands reserve for the vocalist. So there's just really no question. One thing I do like to do with my own copy is imagine that the second side is telling a little story. Remember how I was referring to, I like to see side two as the warning medley? Well, I like to pretend that Lucifer was actually being really sincere in the song N.I.B. Like, yeah, he wanted to steal that lady's soul, but he actually did have genuine love for her. But then he grows some empathy, looking at what an awful world he's had a hand in making in the song Wicked World. And eventually realizing that she was actually too much for him to handle in the closing warning.
3: Just a little
1: bit too strong. Yeah, look, I know it's not even close to intentional. I'm putting my own meanings on it. But listen, that's why I told you at the top of the show that discography can be a really personal journey for me. And that's why I like to consider The Wicked World Pressing to be the quote unquote true version. But hey, look, while we're here, let's get real. Let's talk about a few urban legends regarding the album. The cover depicts the maple Durham Watermill, and there's a pretty spooky-looking lady on the cover. And I'd heard tales in the pre-internet days that she just happened to be strolling in front of the shot. That didn't hold much weight for me. I didn't buy it. Later, I'd be validated finding out that Tony Iommi at least knew that her first name was Louise and that she had, in fact, been hired as a model for the day. Also, concerning the artwork, the original inside cover depicted an inverted cross, which apparently really ticked the band off, fearing that they'd be lumped in with Satanists and the likes. And they had reasons to be concerned about that, because if you'll remember when I mentioned the group Coven way earlier, they had just put out an album in 1969, something like Witchcraft Reaps Minds and Destroys Souls, I mean, hey, what a cool album title, right? but also the Manson family thing had happened, so you wanted to get the hell away from the burgeoning satanic panic that wouldn't even come close to peaking to the 80s, but Jesus Christ, I am getting ahead of myself, and Jesus Christ, that's not the time to say Jesus Christ. Anyways, Ozzy's memoir refutes that the band wasn't into it he claims that he can't recall any of the four genuinely feeling this way but to me that's not even concrete enough I mean it ain't a stretch to intimate that it's a shock that Ozzy can recall anything ever at all so yeah my belief is that if they didn't want to be lumped in with Satanists they'd have refrained from writing love songs about the devil like NIB speaking of NIB though many have stated over the years that the title is an acronym for Nativity in Black but the band has stated instead that it was really pronounced Nib and was used to poke fun at Bill Ward's goatee, which apparently looked like the nib of a pen. Bill Ward, spoiler alert, ends up being the whipping boy a lot of the time. But it was the band's decision to put periods between each letter for a bit of mystery making the title into an acronym, so this is one that they sort of invited themselves. And as I mentioned at the top of the show not going to get into the wars of who started what genre and when but there's no getting around the notion that the black sabbath debut was the beginning of something and while critics loudly hated this thing the kids had the ears to hear it and it was in many ways the shot heard round the world the only thing left to do was to try and top the thing i think that history's pretty clear on what came of the album but Let's talk about the next album, as if this is all news to us. Black Sabbath released their second album, Paranoid, in September of 1970. Yes, if you are keeping count at home, that means that the album Black Sabbath, the debut, and Paranoid, those came out in the same calendar year. Talk about having your bell rung musically, right? Who else can I even compare to that? I mean, maybe like the second and third Ramones records. I'm sure you could probably find some Beatles comparisons. Anyways, don't let me get off track. Uh, let's let's stay on topic. By now, you probably know that Black Sabbath's second album, Paranoid, is a flat-out heavy masterpiece, but you're probably also well aware that it wasn't supposed to be called Paranoid in the first place. But just in case that's news to you, I'm going to ask the hardcore fans to please allow me just a minute to explain. So, the band wrote a tune out of an onstage jam. They were jamming on the song Warning. A lot of the time in the early days, they would just play a song for the entirety of their set. I mean, I believe that this was pre-record deal years, but either way, that's how it went. Warning is the song that closed the last album. The jam that they wrote out of Warning was fleshed out into what we now know as War Pigs, which opens Paranoid, which makes for amazing conceptual continuity for the Zappa fans in the back. But back to the saga, initially the band was going to call this record *Walpurgis*, which was the original title of the song War Pigs. The label, either Vertigo in the UK or Warner Brothers in the US, thought that it was too occulty or something. So at some point it changed to an album called War Pigs. Now, my money is on Vertigo, probably having said no that's too occulty, and my reason is, again, the band Coven. Coven kind of was cut off at the knees right after the Manson murders and the ensuing satanic panic that really, really peaked in the 80s. And don't worry, we are going to touch on that. I lived through it, too. We can swap the war stories now. Anyways, that whole story... That's why the cover of Paranoid has a really clumsy-looking pig-looking dude with a sword and a shield on the cover. It was supposed to be called War Pigs by that time. But at the very last minute, the title gets changed to Paranoid, which works out as somehow their song of the same name had just become a major, major hit. So the art might seem like a little bit off, but that pretty much brings us up to speed. So let's talk about this freaking behemoth, right?
3: Gathered in them, I At black
1: I mean, can you even think of another song on the planet that makes people go wilder with just a simple hi-hat? This song goes so many places for an album kickoff that it might make you genuinely nervous that the rest is just going to be filler. I mean, lyrics about politicians playing war like a game of chess, using poor people as the pieces, and then you get riffs like this? I mean, yeah, if I didn't already know this album like the back of my hand and I was hearing it for the first time in 2019, I'd probably be all like, well, it can only go downhill from here. They peaked way too early. But no such luck, because sure, the band might make their label a bit nervous sometimes, but said label deserves an endless amount of kudos for letting them DEVELOP artistic output is not static 99 percent of the time things will ebb and flow the only people that don't seem to be aware of that is the music industry itself but hey back when you could actually have some money to play around in a studio and see what shakes out what do you know the band gets censored by the label and still has plenty of artistic freedom to turn in an album that pretty much turned the entire world on now why would i mention artistic freedom because the biggest tune here the title track paranoid It is actual and definable filler. Now I want to be extra clear about what I mean by the word filler. Oftentimes you hear the word filler used to describe music that doesn't move the reviewer or whoever's talking about the record as much as say the big hits or the songs that they really dig on the record, but in this case filler means the record might be a little bit too short and you do need to pad it out, and apparently that was what happened with Paranoid, the song. No, seriously. It's my understanding, and I've seen this talked about a number of different ways. Not all the stories match, but the mean average seems to be record is a little short, needs to be padded by a few minutes, and Paranoid the song is the result. Let me repeat that. Paranoid is actual and definable filler. The album was too short. Tony straps his guitar on and then this riff just comes tumbling out of him. And then the band scurried off to go write some stuff to go along with it, having absolutely no idea that they were actually composing their first bona fide hit. That's right, when the filler on your album is arguably the biggest song of your entire career and undeniably one of the best hard rock songs ever written, I feel like saying almost anything beyond that is just overthinking this damn album. but you came to discography because that's what we do. We overthink albums, so let me get back to it. Though I don't really have all that much else to say about the wall-rattling heaviness of this title track. I do suppose that I could mention that a bunch of folks, including radio programmers, totally misheard the final line of the song, which convinced many that what Ozzy sang was, I tell you to end your life. I wish I could, but it's too late. I.e. telling teenagers to commit suicide from the ether, apparently. When in fact the line was, I tell you to enjoy life. But, the too late part could be construed as a message from beyond the grave or that they're resigned to the misery they've described in the rest of the song for whatever the remainder of their life will be. Either way, they could be half-right, but they'd always be at least half-wrong, because it's an open-ended and rather non-committal ending to what's really just a cautionary tale, and... uh, What else can I say about the Paranoid album? Oh yeah, this song's on it too. (laughs) make a joke here about how this could be the year that the song Iron Man really takes off because I think that what well, with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and all I think the world's finally ready for it but when you consider that this thing might only be second to smoke on the water in the category of most famous guitar riff ever that's just a dumbass thing to say but you know what isn't dumb though the lyrics all right so remember back when I was having trouble figuring out which song might end where on the debut I done up and got myself a little book in my research well I got a couple of books watched a couple of documentaries oh we're going to be touching on all of those but this particular book that i'd like to tell you about it's called black sabbath song by song and it's written by steve pilkington so i mean this album had some extra titles here and there like the outro of war pigs being called luke's wall on my copy of paranoid which is apparently specific to the u.s copies so i figured that this book could maybe help me separate some of those things instead what i found was best explanation of Iron Man's lyric I've ever heard and I'd like to read you just a a short passage from that portion of Mr. Pilkington's highly, highly recommendable guide. It reads as follows. It concerns a scientist who develops a time machine that he uses to go forward to a time when he witnesses an apocalyptic future in which mankind meets its violent demise. While traveling back to warn the world of this fate and urge them to take steps to avoid it, he's involved in an accident involving a magnetic field, which turns him to steel, leaving him unable to communicate the vital message he has to impart. Hurt, frustrated, and enraged by the way his attempts to communicate are ridiculed and dismissed, he ultimately barks on a vengeance-fueled rampage of destruction, becoming the very instrument of mankind's destruction from which he had sought to save them. End quote. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot more going on here than you might think, and that's probably just because the song is ever-present, a victim of mass, mass oversaturation, And we sort of turned it into background noise by now, but I'm with Henry Rollins on this one. Listen to this turnaround in the middle and realize that Bill, Geezer, and Tony would have to do this every fucking night on stage, likely while not even making eye contact with each other. <laughs> That? That is a goddamn band right there. It's a rightful classic. Everything on Paranoid is down to the drum solo on the second side called Rat Salad. And listen... I love Bill Ward. I am team Bill Ward all day, every day. And though I do play most of the drums on my own albums, I don't really know a single thing about how to actually drum. So I had a chat with Jim Myers, both vocalist and drummer from the band Milk Carton Superstars. You heard a little bit of the introduction earlier. But ultimately, I wanted to talk to him about Rat Salad. Often I hear this track, it's a little bitty thing. I hear it referred to sometimes as filler on Paranoid as well. And I wanted to see what he thought, because I know that we both deeply, deeply love Bill's singular feel. I wanted to see what Jim Myers had
2: to say about it. Um, I've always found it to be a nice, tight little rock solo that fits the the musical narrative of the album. it's it just gives Bill some space to do some of those things like that I kind of alluded to with, with you know those there's those pockets of energy like in the wizard where you know he's he's doing Bill Ward things that fill up space in the song and then snaps everybody back into it. Um, it gives him just like you know a minute and a half or whatever that is because it's not a really long song. It's not. It's, it's like not. the
1: shortest thing on that record. Yeah,
2: and and that's I always thought that was very considerate. <laughs>
1: That super mellow groove is a clip from the song Planet Caravan, where you get Bill Ward on hand drubs that sound as if they're being played by Tony's heavy fingertip extenders, a few jazz piano chords, and some super Django Reinhardt-inspired solo runs from Tony, Geezer holds down the feel, and Ozzy. Look This is just one of Ozzy's finest vocal performances, especially cool here because he spends a lot of Paranoids running time singing with a higher and more nasal, almost Lennon inspired voice rather than the chesty bluesy voice he had favored on the debut, but here, on Planet Caravan, yeah there's an oscillating effect and his voice is being sent through a spinning Leslie speaker, but man can this guy land a great melody. His voice was so much more diverse and just flat out right than I think he was ever given credit for. I know what it says, I know what it sounds like to say, Ozzy not given enough credit, right? But, really? Who says this? Who points out Ozzy is great at melodies? And sure, spoiler alert, later vocalists are absolutely quote-unquote better technically. But Ozzy, much like Bill, has this sort of unexplainable feel and vibe that's guiding him. Ozzy is just all vibe on these early Sabbath records, and I'll probably get into that more later on when there's a bit of a changing of the guards. You'll know. We've got a lot to cover before that. And hey, listen, spoiler alert for those who know the records that I make as Mark with a C. If you think you know where I'm going with this season, you don't. Getting back to Paranoid, though... Four stone radio classics are here in the form of Iron Man, War Pigs, the title track, and Fairies Wear Boots, inspired by either an actual hallucination about fairies and dwarves, if you're asking Tony Iommi, Or maybe a band member being viciously attacked by skinheads if you ask the Classic Albums TV special about Paranoid. And heck, Ozzy claims that he was only told that he wrote the lyrics himself, but doesn't remember any of that at all. So you've just got a chance for endless speculation here. But there's no getting around just how much it rules. It comes on the heels of Rat Salad, so it'd be perfectly understandable if the album were to start to sag with the opening of The Sweet, a riff known as Jack the Stripper on U.S. copies, but then the Real Deal riff kicks in, and anybody's jaw should drop at the consistency present for the full duration of the record. And besides that, remember when I told you that the band would be open if they wanted a song to be about drugs and they wanted you to know that?
4: Well... So-
1: The multi-part Hand of Doom, which musically sounds like the logical progression from Warning Off the Debut, is about how the kids coming back from the Vietnam War had turned to heroin to self-medicate and live with all the awful carnage they'd seen, heard, and potentially even done themselves. You don't see children die and get to walk away unscathed unless you're a psychopath most times, but perhaps I'm projecting. Either way, the song is blunt as hell, references to needles, LSD, and some really unpredictable tempo changes and musical movements, and you know what it doesn't have? titles. The template for Sabbath to make epics without having to nitpick every last detail for the U.S. copies seems to be tested out here and it's pretty damn successful. So, in conclusion, back when the heaviest things around were the likes of I Can See for Miles, Helter Skelter, That Coven Record, If Six Was Nine, Mountain, you probably couldn't have even dreamt up how destructive and satisfyingly just crushing paranoid really is if you drop the needle and hear musical wallpaper tune into an instrument and listen to what it's doing think about how that person is alternately flying solo but also serving the greater good of the song usually only joining the other musicians in unison with a song identifying riff it's a combination that had every single excuse to fall apart but not only did it do the exact opposite There's no arguing that the influence and reach of Paranoid would literally, not figuratively, but literally change the entirety of music from the day of release up until the present far, far, far into whatever future we're going to have. Take a quick break from the saga here just to talk about a few links that matter, but don't worry, this won't take long, it won't be painful. I've done this a few times, and I did study massage in Votech, so I know how to be gentle and hit all the right nerves. So, do you want to hook up with discography online? A great way to do that is facebook.com discography on CPN. That'll bring you to our Facebook page. You can commiserate with us, it'll be lots of fun. I'd also like to say if you want to uh, talk to me personally, I'm not always around, I'm, a, I'm pretty busy, to be fair. I don't mean that in a I'm too busy for you way. I mean, I just don't often get to sit down and play around on computers anymore. Life just hasn't worked that way, and if you know anything about my 2019, you know that to be true. But it, just in case you do, twitter.com, I'm at markfi. That's right, as in there's hi-fi, mid-fi, lo fi and markfi, M-A-R-C-F-I. Say hi if you're in the neighborhood. You're looking for me on facebook facebook.com slash mark with music now why do i keep saying music and then i make music i don't know if you'll be into it it's usually sloppy lo-fi pop rock um kind of indie rock kind of all over the map a little bit outsidery you might like it you might not find out for yourself at mark with But what you've also got at markwithac.com up top is a whole bunch of little icons you can click or tap and it'll take you to my Facebook, it'll take you to Twitter, it'll take you to my Patreon. The Patreon helps fill in the gaps because as anybody knows... Making independent records and podcastery it doesn't exactly pay all the bills, and I would be grateful for any support, but the best way, the absolute best way you can support this show is if you are having a good time with it, tell a friend about it. Season one of Discography, we did Frank Zappa. Season two of Discography, we did Her Highness. We did Janet Jackson's whole Discography, and then season three, we did... I don't want to pat myself on the back too much here, but possibly the most exhaustive look into the Who that has ever existed in podcast form, at least up to now. And I hope that season four is just as rewarding for you. If you're hankering for more Black Sabbath, a great destination for you is black-sabbath.com. There's just endless amounts of great information there. Also, there's a great documentary on YouTube made by a fan under the name Razor Fist. Look it up, Black Sabbath, metal mythos, but don't go too far ahead because hey, let's do this saga together. Let's make a pact, okay? You don't read ahead, I won't read ahead. All right, we'll do it together, sound good? rad. And also, I'd like to remind you that discography boss Cat Blackard happens to run one of the coolest podcasts around. That's right, Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. If you are a fan of Black Sabbath, there is no chance you are not going to find some resonance in the material in Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program. Can't say enough, enough good stuff about it. I did a, a little bit of work with them Only uh, some audio help early on in season one, and I can tell you that it's grown into a completely different universe, and it's very rewarding for you and for me and for everybody. And this has been Links That Matter. I'll be back in just a second to talk about Master of Reality. And of course, please rate and review us wherever you found us. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Master of Reality, Black Sabbath's third studio album released in July of 1971. Yeah, that's right. This all happened in about a year and a half so far. And it's quite simply the kind of record where you drop the needle and you just immediately say, fuck yes. what we gotta mention right away, Roger Bain is still producing the records just as he'd done for the debut in Paranoid, and the coughing fit at the beginning of the album is literally just Tony Iommi gagging after a particularly large joint was passed his way. This is the first Sabbath record where they'd tune the guitar and bass down a step and a half to create an even thicker, heavier, and more impenetrable wall of freaking sound. Ozzy sings even higher than he has on the last two records, oddly leaving Bill Ward with a bit more mid-range on the frequency spectrum to fill up and play with than a rock drummer would use. Usually have and lastly and the pile of shit you have to say if you're talking about Black Sabbath's master of reality album is look this thing's a watershed moment in the development of heavy music as well as in Sabbath's own growth but it doesn't feel transitional that's a nearly impossible combination to pull off and it's just that powerful it's barely 35 minutes it's debatable how many actual songs are even present and that sort of depends on how you define what a song is and And again, which country your copy originates from? See, I count six full tracks on here with Sweet Leaf, After Forever, End of the Void, Solitude, Lord of This World, and the crushing, crushing Children of the Grave. Early US copies could separate these things into about as many as 10 or 12 titles but my ears tell me that those are the only definable tracks and everything else one could list is either an intro or an outro or can be looked at that way at least it's a bit complicated but that makes for my personal favorite type of album the type where it works best if you just turn off your brain play the record straight through let it be what it is and just let yourself go into their world and to these ears, Master of Reality is Sabbath's first genuine dive into Light and Shade. Very little's done with the spaces between, and that really works in the record's favor, so it's either going full steam ahead, or it's dropped down to something very gentle, usually courtesy of Tony Iommi all by his lonesome. And one of the first tracks we gotta talk about is After Forever, which may open with a one-note synthesizer intro called The Elegy if you're listening to one of those aforementioned early US copies. A lot was made of the evil, satanic connotations that people saw in the group, and they had some pretty scary experiences while some fairly scary folks sought the band members out. But in truth, it's simply not what the band believed in, not the least of which would, which would be the usual lyric writer for this period, Geezer Butler. So in the track, After Forever, the lyrics are painfully, painfully explaining that the members of Black Sabbath actually believe and follow the Christian and or Catholic faith. When you think about that, do
3: you lose your breath or
1: Despite killer riffs and bass lines that owe a huge debt to tones heard in the Beatles' *Paperback Writer*, it's an odd little anomaly in this period. The band genuinely wanted to get stuff across instead of just boogieing and soloing all over the place. And hey, nothing wrong with what I described. But it sounds like the group started just realizing just how much their lyrics were being picked apart, and decided to actually make some use out of that attention. Like, okay, write a riff as crushingly heavy and destructive as the one in *Sweet Leaf*, right? And then. Bam! Throw some lyrics on it about how great wheat is, and you've done your job. You made the kids happy, you pissed off the parents, and you fucking rocked in the process. But that wasn't all they wanted to get across to the kids. Oh sure, the title of Children of the Grave might seem like trying too hard to sound evil, but that can only be said if you've never actually heard the tune. Not only do the detuned guitars rattle the fillings in anyone's teeth for miles around, and not only does Bill Ward find a way to cut the mix with overdubs of extra toms and percussion for a bit of ear candy, but, but the words. We gotta talk about the words. Basically, it's the band's way of saying, hey, we see that you want a revolution, but you're gonna have to do it with love, or you're probably gonna get killed in the process.
4: So you children,
1: Folks would mishear the final line with the word all instead of or, which does make it seem like the kids are doomed from the start, but hey, isn't Darkness and Evil what you're signing up for here? Either way, this particular track would become a huge fan favorite rightfully so, too, usually closing the main set of most Sabbath gigs eventually, usually preceded by the solo Ayomi track found in the same place here called Embryo, and this is what I mean when I say that Master of Reality is such a great study in light and shade. Sure, you have unbelievably dark-sounding stuff like the pummeling, multi-part Lord of this World, but to precede Children of the Grave, you get this Celtic-inspired ditty. Ditto for the aforementioned Lord of This World, which is kicked off by a sweet and gentle piece called Orchid before the next tune completely defines, redefines, and then defines again what groove can even mean. Dig it, cut from the same cloth as Paranoid's Planet Caravan, one of those lighter moments turns into a fully fledged track called Solitude, but this one not only takes it a step further with flutes and woodwinds, but have you even heard Ozzy sound like this before? Okay, so here's the deal, that doesn't actually sound a thing like Ozzy to me. I know, I know, I was going on about how underrated his gifts are and I stand by that, but if the Ozman can pull this off, why is it literally the only time he would ever do it? I tried my best to research this and every official source claims that this is in fact Ozzy Osbourne singing on Solitude, where my ears tell me that it's actually the drummer Bill Ward. And I've got reasons to think so, and hardcore Sabbath fans no doubt already know why, but no matter, the party line is that this is 100% Osborne, so I don't suppose I've got anything besides my ears to tell me or prove otherwise. I love the song, I've always dug it, but it wasn't until I tried to approach this with a fresh set of ears and a completely blank mind that I'd ever found that it wasn't Bill. But hey, reportedly the band stayed pretty damn high while making this record, so I'm not going to yell about some misremembered details. But speaking of Bill, our closing piece on Master of Reality, Into the Void, we almost never got to hear it at all. Back when the tune was still under the working title of Spanish Sid, right? We know other stuff from these sessions exists, so if the song couldn't be finished, they'd have probably had something in their back pocket that they could slap on instead, like the mysterious Weevil Woman that showed up unexpectedly years later on deluxe copies of the record. But no, there was just something in the vibe that Bill could not nail. And I've heard that they may have tried up to four completely different studios trying to find one with the right... I don't know, aura or something, but then they came up against an extra problem that they hadn't anticipated. There's a tempo change, and Ozzy kept tripping over his syllables over and over while trying to get one final take down. Tony reportedly took great pleasure at laughing at the situation, and I suppose that if you've moved your amps four times just to find out that your vocalist can't sing the tune, well, you probably just got to kick back and laugh. I mean, wouldn't you? But my God... That C-sharp minor riff? That groove? This is often name-checked as many people's favorite Sabbath tune of all time, so all of that work paid off. Influential doesn't even begin to cover Master of Reality. Masterpiece almost doesn't even seem fitting because it's every bit the equal of anything else they've done up until now. It's just an alternately broader and more narrow palette. Black Sabbath had really found their feet on an album that never gets old, never sounds weak, and frankly you'd have to get up pretty early in the morning and eat an extra bowl of Wheaties just to find something to complain about here. But perhaps the most amazing thing about Master of Reality is that while the first two Black Sabbath records would change everything for so many people, when looking at the scope of where Black Sabbath was gonna go, those masterpieces can still be considered formative. Isn't that wild? So, hey, Black Sabbath's Volume 4 album. It was released in September of 1972, and it has tales upon tales that can be told. Now, most Sabbath fans worth their stripes are well aware that this record was supposed to be originally titled Snowblind, because, again, these guys are not shy about their habits. And let me tell you, every time I learn a new story about this era, I'm more and more amazed that Either someone even remembered this shit going down, if they were as fucked up as they claim, and if all those stories are true, then I am doubly impressed that 43 minutes worth of releasable music was the result, let alone that it's good. So let me paint the picture for you. It's 1972. You're maybe a few steps behind Zeppelin in the pantheon of popular heavy bands of the time. You, in Black Sabbath, you don't really know that, because your allegedly penny-pinching manager, Patrick Meehan, is only occasionally doling out a check when a band member needed something to literally survive. Remember, these guys came from nothing, and they weren't idiots, but if you think the music industry is confusing and ruthless right now, just imagine how much more mysterious and impenetrable all that stuff must have seen to four cats from birmingham who just wanted to play some bluesy rock with weird subject matter in 1972 of course sabbath didn't think they were the biggest thing since sliced bread every magazine hated them and they were already sort of programmed to think that the heights of stardom weren't built to be scaled by these types of blokes your first three albums are spawning soundalikes but you don't even know that The wool is being pulled over your eyes at every turn, and that's purely management. So when you put those facts next to a cat like Tony Iommi, who'd prove to have a truly restless creative spirit, you're going to get a weird, weird record. But the most weird thing about it might be how relatively sedate... It is, I mean just in comparison to where we've been, and how thin some of the guitar tones now are compared to where we've been so far for Sabbath at this point. And hell, if you didn't know that Tony was naked out of his gourd in the control room randomly beating his cross necklace against his guitar for a few minutes for an instrumental interlude called FX, by the time you get to the third track of Volume 4, one could almost argue that the band was, get this, maturing. Based at least on the ever widening sonic palette, like that found on the Should Have Been Bigger Than Beth by Kiss track known as Changes. Ah! There you go. Ozzy's crooning just as melodically as you could ever hope for. Tony's playing a simple piano refrain. Geezer approximates a small orchestra through brilliant use of a mellotron. I'm sure there's plenty of circles where this type of song appearing on a Black Sabbath record was plenty controversial and hell, probably considered wussy and kind of a sellout. I think it's a nice tune myself, but I also heard plenty of Ozzy's solo power ballads on the radio while growing up, so maybe this one doesn't strike me as the hard left turn that some likely view it as. Instead, again, I ask you to consider the improbability of something this pretty coming out of the chaos that was a Black Sabbath recording session. Especially if you've read all those stories about the band taking apart the plumbing in a mansion to try to retrieve $10,000 worth of drugs that they flushed down the toilet after tripping a silent alarm that brought a bunch of cops to the house rather than say, you know, writing anything. But the real change on Volume 4, and what I personally believe accounts for the change in sounds, the textures, the feel, the tones, this was the first album that they weren't just shitting out between tour dates. Nothing was rushed here. Gone would be the days of first idea, best idea, and Roger Bain capturing a bunch of heavy classics more or less played live in the studio, no. This time, they wouldn't be going anywhere until they made a record they were happy with, evidenced by the band opting to produce the record themselves, giving their manager a co-production credit that I've heard seems to be mostly out of vanity and maybe some points on the back end. By which, I mean it looks to me like Tony Iommi produced the album, but I wasn't there, so I'll at least mention what the credits say. And hey, like I said, the overall guitar tone is brighter, which makes the record seem deceptively laid back compared to the first three. But further listenings reveal that the actual notes and the spaces between them still as doomy, crushing, and brilliant as ever. The album is book-ended by two longer epics. The first one's the Niner Minute, so Wheels of Confusion Suite, and it has uh, three pretty distinct movements. But it's this one where they marry an even more melodic than usual Ozzy melody to another Lord of This World-type groove that really makes me excited that I've dropped the needle on this sucker. Not to say that I necessarily prefer Wheels of Confusion to that closing epic with those ever-present extra titles, this one being the absolutely relentless changes of Under the Sun slash Everyday Comes and Goes, but I've always been confused about the way that Vertigo and Warner tried to market this thing. Like it couldn't be lost on them that it's mostly an audience of disillusioned teenagers and people who have a predilection towards the darkness. So why on earth censor the band by not letting them call the record Snowblind? Why is the label censoring what Sabbath was better at than nearly anyone in heavy music at the time, talking about what the fuck was actually happening in the real world? Or evil sci-fi stuff, but mostly the former up until this point. Drug references were only going to excite the Black Sabbath audience more and more. And heck, you might even sell a few extra copies when churches buy them just to burn them in public bonfires, but no. And hey, that changes songs pretty, right? So why not market that to pop radio or something at the time? But again, no. No. According to Mick Wall's very informative book on Black Sabbath called Symptom of the Universe, it was Tony Iommi himself that put the kibosh on releasing Changes as a single to Radio. So this record was supposed to be called Snowblind, but instead they'd slap a weirdly tinted silhouette of the Ozman on the cover and release a solitary single to Radio, and it's a perfectly fine track known as Tomorrow's Dream, and don't get me wrong, I like that tune. Heck, I like everything on Volume 4. But it's arguably the weakest legit song here. My choice for a compromise might shock you, but my pick for the sleeper hit that should have been a single here? No, I'm not saying that it would have done the same kind of damage that Paranoid would have done, but I actually would have chosen the mighty and too often overlooked Saint Vitus dance. Or hell, just release Snowblind as the damn single, since the label, get this, didn't censor the chorus. is one of my very favorite moments on a record that's still an absolute classic, but to my ears, it's still actually kind of transitional in nature. These cats had never been allowed actual time with their instruments in a studio to see what might shake out. For the most part, in the first 3 records, there were songs that worked on stage and I don't know, maybe a pretty guitar interlude to fill space. But now they've got time, a little cash, a bunch of drugs, They're getting to self-produce themselves and bitch in L.A. studios, and they're turning every knob just to see what it does. And this is probably what accounts for me having the rather controversial opinion that... (gasps) Okay, listen, I've got this t-shirt that says you can only trust yourself and the first six Black Sabbath albums, and I don't disagree with that statement, but that said, out of the first six admittedly this is the one that i reach for the least no real reason i guess i can say that with the first three it feels like an arrival and this one feels like a journey to get somewhere else doesn't mean it's bad not at all but what it does mean is that since this is a slightly less obvious record it helps to dig your heels in and spend some time with volume four to get the best out of it and i've done that and while it still isn't my absolute favorite or anything i am never upset that i put it on you know but wait Am I even legally allowed to talk about Volume 4 if I don't mention the straight-up holocaust of a riff in Cornucopia? Hold on, let me check out the local statutes. And, uh... No, I'm good. <laughs> Turns out I can say whatever the... Uh, hold on, no, it is. There There it is. There's a subclause that clearly states that I have to talk about Supernaut. Supernaut. <laughs> And I know that sounds like a bit of a stretch, but listen to Geezer's bass swoops and the way they're locking with Bill's kick drum. It's like incidental music from a 70s cop show, but with the guitar turned up way, way louder than the bass. And man, if you are a sucker for a great drum break like I am, hold on to your epidermis there, buddy. they just keep piling more and more stuff until it just becomes so breathtaking that you're like, oh, thank God this is the end of the album side. I need a break right now, especially when you've got solos like this. Did you mention that they self-produced this? That's right. No actual producer telling them to tighten songs up. This is magic that these four cats did pretty much all by their lonesome under some circumstances that didn't really seem like they were going to allow for that. This is a pretty damn pure distillation of the best that Sabbath could bring in 1972. Is it my absolute favorite? No. But does that matter? No. Am I ever disappointed when I'm listening to volume four? Hell no. Am I a little bummed out at how Patrick Meehan seems to be treating the band? Well, yeah, obviously. They're human beings, and they made all this great music, and I wish they were better able to, you know, enjoy the spoils of their hard work. But hey, around this time, they hired a lawyer named Don Arden. I'm, I'm just sure he's going to get things straight in two jingles of an oversized cross necklace, right? <laughs> Band's fifth album, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, was released at the tail end of 1973 in the UK and at the very tip of 1974 in the United States, coming out a bit late due to an oil shortage reportedly, though I'm unsure how many other releases were similarly affected at the time, but man, what a rocky road to get here. So let's do a little bit of a quick catch up, right? So the tour for Volume 4, by all accounts, was grueling, to put it mildly. The guys played everywhere that they possibly could in the United States and Australia, and New Zealand, and Europe. They had every right to be completely burnt out, but the spirits of the times meant that there was always um, something to fuel the band with at those critical junctures. And despite the fact that the band was certainly starting to notice that something was going amiss with their finances, breaking their own backs to make piddly little checks while their management was reportedly flush with Rolls Royces, The group was also still exceptionally happy with the way that Volume 4 had turned out. So much so that they even sought to recreate the circumstances that birthed the prior record. Even ended up right back at the record plant in Los Angeles again. These guys were simply on fire, there's no doubt about it. And when they all got together to make the magic that would become their fifth album, Tony Iommi, the master of riffage himself, he puts picked a string and... Nothing. Straight up writer's block. This meant that Geezer didn't have any direction to go in lyrically. And Ozzy really couldn't make up any melodies. They probably passed a bunch of the time waiting for inspiration to arrive by playing pranks on the hapless Bill Ward, because seriously, I've read that Bill was totally their punching bag, and I'd guess that sort of thing might heighten if there's not a ton of distractions, but this kid who also used to get bullied a lot is probably projecting all over Mr. Ward and is... Perfectly fine with telling you that. Basically, though, if Tony didn't come up with the goods, the other three are at a standstill. There's no getting around that. While every member of Sabbath's initial incarnation was devastatingly important in their own right, Tony is the creative center for the Sabs. So no riffs equal no work for the rest of the gang. So that gang made a pretty smart move when they decided to head to more familiar grounds. Renting a haunted castle in England to try to get some mojo work, in. and of course... This is a haunted castle, and after most of the band saw another mysterious shadowy figure inhabiting the grounds, not unlike the one that appeared at the foot of a bed to inspire the lyrics to their namesake song, and after spending some quality wood-shedding time in a literal dungeon, Tony put his pick to his guitar strings again, and this time, out tumbles... (laughs) None other than the anchor riff of the title track of an absolutely classic heavy record, Sabbath Bloody Sabbath. The album itself is arguably even 40 times better than the best review you've ever heard of this thing, and hell, it's hard for me to even pick a better track to showcase the best of what's going on here than the actual titular cut itself. Now following in the footsteps of Volume 4, it's a bit brighter in general. Where the light and dark was often separated into interludes on previous records, here the band takes surprising approaches like, say, getting to the hook of Sabbath Bloody Sabbath and making it quieter, heavier on the acoustic instruments and varying textures, with lyrics detailing just how hard it was becoming for these cats to trust the words coming out of anyone's mouth in their then-current situation.
3: Nobody would
1: It's around three and a half minutes into this monster that they drop one of Tony's most sick and grinding riffs of his entire career to date underneath Ozzy, showing off parts of his vocal range that I'm still kind of shocked that he ever hit. We're not even out of the opening cut yet I'm not about to tell you that this thing is better than the first album or Paranoid or make any weird comparisons, but there's a reason that the first six Sabbath albums are usually grouped together when people talk about them. To love one is to simply need the other five. Because let's say you heard a tune that you liked by Sabbath on the radio. Um, I don't know which one. Throw a dart. Um, I don't know. Let's say it was Electric Funeral from Paranoid. Now if you went out and bought Paranoid because of it and you thought it was all you needed, Can you even imagine the look on your face when you first hear the riff from the second cut here, a national acrobat? And that intro riff ends up giving way to more harmonic guitar lines, and then there's it just becomes guitar-money central. But I think my two favorite things about this one are, well, for one, the shockingly catchy harmony-laden vocal hook about... Get this, the sperm that did not make it to the egg.
4: The and, images, the child was
1: and my other favorite part? Take a listen to just the intro riff again, but pay attention to what the drummer, Bill Ward, is doing. See, Tony and Geezer are keeping the riff tightly wound and on beat, while there's just this little hint of slack in Bill's Drive here, trailing back on the hi-hat a bit, doubling up on the kick drum when I least expect it, and again, people, we are not even out of the first two songs. Now, what you're hearing in the background right now is a hint of a track known as Fluff, an acoustic thing that isn't too dissimilar from... I mean, there's been at least one of these things on each record since Master of Reality, and it's very nice. It breaks up the album really nicely. But it also seems to me that Tony must just be damned and determined to have something on each record to prove that the guys aren't all doom and gloom. Anyone with a set of ears should have been able to figure that out from the word go, listening to the band mourn the world being wicked on the debut. But as there's still plenty of people that likely think that Sabbath is just dull, dumb, thudding, Johnny one-note merc. This kind of thing is absolutely necessary here because, hey, I don't know if you've noticed, but people still haven't actually gotten that message. Plus, which would you be more surprised by? This acoustic gem or, say, the full-tilt classic rock boogie-woogie of Sabra-Kadabra with its made-for-mainstream radio play, I Love My Little Lady lyrics? Would it surprise you more to find out that Rick Wakeman, who's on furlough from Yes, drops by for one of the least predictable synthesizer turnarounds this side of Paul McCartney's wonderful Christmas time. Or at least I assume that's Rick Wakeman. I mean, he's credited in the liner notes, but Tony has definitely been playing some twinkly bits on piano here and there, in hell, Even Ozzy did so on a track that he mostly whipped up himself on an ARP 2600 and a few Revox tape machines, the relatively sedate and far catchier than any one song has a right to be, known as Who Are You? Now, Ozzy wasn't exactly considering himself to be the band's brand new main songwriter or anything, but rather that if Tony Iommi was having trouble writing, he and Geezer would try to whip some stuff up to keep the band in motion, and that song was the result. An experiment that helps to keep you guessing on this otherworldly gem of an album, but not at the expense of what you've come to want from a Black Sabbath album. If you still need the stick in the mud riffs, look no further than the harshly autobiographical tune about how much they'd been breaking their collective backs to keep food on the table in the should have been a goddamn hit song called Killing Yourself to Live. Yes, what might have kept this tune from being the obvious pick for FM radio programmers? It would be this little bit that the boys stuck into the middle, Snowblind style. Oh, those pranksters. Anyways, there's only 8 tracks on Sabbath Bloody Sabbath, but absolutely nothing here's a throwaway. And all the experiments work exceptionally well, whether we're talking about the relatively up tempo looking for today, the majesty of fluff, the pummeling tribal outro of the title track, or the complete mind meld that's the closing five minutes of Spiral Architect.
4: Of all the things I-
1: I mean, just how epic of a closer do you want? (laughs) Synths, timpani, according to the liner notes, Geezer plays nose flute and Tony plays some bagpipes. And it's a tune that could be about the way that our DNA morphs as we accumulate experiences. Geezer's confirmed that there's a few lines about injecting drugs, but it's also a tune with nods to masochistic love being, quote, the way. And as such, the meaning of the track has been the topic of debate between many pairs of Black Sabbath fans over the years, I'm sure, and definitely not speaking from experience. Okay, there's no getting around it. Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath, both the song and the full ensuing album, another masterpiece and a long line of heavy masterpieces. Sure, it seems a bit more commercial in places, but it's also more likely a matter of the mainstream starting to catch up to the Sabbath tones because they're also experimenting with song structures just as much as ever. And the album's all the better for all the surprising progressive twists and turns. I wish Rick Wakeman had more time to work with the band, but that's the only thing close to a complaint I can come up with here, down to the overwhelming artwork drawn by Drew Struzan. But unfortunately, Black Sabbath's personal lives, health, and finances were in turmoil. But you'd never have known it from self-produced material this strong. The hardcore broken glass Black Sabbath fans already know what I'm bound by law and blood to state up front about Black Sabbath's 1975 masterpiece, Sabotage. More or less, that manager, Patrick Meehan, turns out he was taking the band to the cleaners, and they were spending about 75% of their lives in courtrooms trying to fire him while making this record. Their newest addition to the Sabbath family, Don Arden, really more of a lawyer by trade, was urging the band to get a great new record out ASAP because the litigation hadn't really gone in the band's favor. Meehan was still going to see royalties and way too much control over the first five Sabbath records at the very least, and Don Arden pushed the group along, hoping they could put out an album that they'd immediately profit from, refilling the coffers, getting the band out of the financial dire straits, and hey, the kids get a new album out of the whole deal. Win, 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 right? Well, as history has shown, it didn't quite go that way. The band literally couldn't get any work done in the studio, as lawyers would interrupt takes, or yet another subpoena was being delivered right in the middle of like a vocal session, I mean it's a wonder that they found time to write this, let alone record an album under these circumstances, let alone so stellar that it would be so impossible to deny the quality of. Those aforementioned hardcore Sabbath fans know that, to even get to the music though, you gotta talk about the album cover. The story goes that the group didn't know that they were doing the actual album cover shoot on that particular day, and that they were maybe going for a mock-up type of thing. Accounts do vary, and with all the coke in everybody's system, it's hard to know which would be true, but the band was absolutely mortified at the results. I'd describe it to you, but honestly, you should just look it up for yourself. The group's image had been very, very dark up to this point, and the clothing worn on the cover of this record... Well, it lends credence to the title. Chosen because the band literally felt that they were being sabotaged at every single turn and frankly, I've got reason to believe them. There's no amount of cocaine in the world that would make Bill Ward intentionally show up to a photo shoot in red tights without the band forcing him to change and that's kinda all you really need to know, really. But okay, we got through the circumstances. How's the album? It's not an easy one for me to be objective about, I'll be straight up with you. This has pretty much always been my favorite Sabbath record, and try as I might, I cannot make myself hear it in a different light, which avid listeners of discography will know is a pretty rare occurrence for me. I can usually separate myself from just the goings-on, but the proof's in the pudding. Everything that was ever good, interesting, and addictive about Black Sabbath up until this moment in time is represented and sometimes even bested here. (laughs) crushing swing just a few seconds in and you've heard someone yell attack and the band does just that. Hole in the Sky is one of those Sabbath tunes that sees a lot of attempts at interpreting the lyrics without much of a consensus. Some have thought it's about life in a prison cell, others go a more abstract, and my own personal favorite interpretation is that it's sung from the perspective of someone who's been unwittingly buried alive, seeing the sky somehow through a pinhole, but they're strangely okay with it. I mean, I know I'm wrong, but who cares when you get guitar minis like this in the middle? Course, the track just cuts off cold. No warning at all. You're dipped into a minute long acoustic guitar doodle before they drop one of the greatest heavy riffs in the history of great heavy riffs in the form of Symptom of the Universe. <laughs> I mean, just what do you even say about a bulldozing riff and groove like that? And Ozzy's voice on this track continues reaching well into his upper range, but just at the cusp of where it comes out as a little shouty. But the marriage really works here, as it does for most of the album, really. In fact, I'd go as far as praising Sabotage as... Ozzy Osbourne's finest hour on a Black Sabbath record to date. Not to take away from anything he's done before, but despite the chaos behind the scenes, he's really found himself with the right voice to fit whatever direction the song of choice is going to go into. He's really learned to make an art out of just a simple refrain of yelling the word yeah. And when you put Bill Ward's astonishing drum work next to the things that I've already mentioned, This is the sound of a band completely unified because the rest of the world is legitimately and genuinely out to get them. And also, I've said it a million times, Black Sabbath at Heart might be a hard rock band, but that's because they chose to be that. Because when you listen to the highly flamenco inspired outro of this same song, it becomes clear just how wide of a sonic palette these guys were really capable of as a unit. Let's say you've only ever heard the song Paranoid maybe, would you have ever, let's say that was coming out of a car window next to you, would you have ever pegged that for being Black Sabbath? But no, they're totally capable of it, and they have been this whole time. Now, one of the more odd critiques I've seen about Sabotage is the reaction to the song called Am I Going Insane with the word radio at the end of the title in parentheses. Understandably, some folks took this at face value looking at the back cover and assumed that this was a hint to radio programmers that this was the single. And as it has a more sedate tempo than almost anything else here, I can kind of see it. It really is more or less a different take on the lyrics of the song Paranoid, but a bit slower and way more melodic than the average Sabbath tune around this time. I know, I know, so what? The band tried to have some chart success. Do you want them to starve? But also, this is just untrue. Radio was Birmingham slang for someone going crazy or mental, and that's that. Of course, it actually is the most commercial song here, so I totally get it, but the tune is sort of like the song Paranoid, and Who Are You from Sabbath Bloody Sabbath Had a Baby, so I can't come up with a single reason not to enjoy it. Plus, are you digging the synthesizers? Well, it turns out that the band loved having new tones on the record after Rick Wakeman's help on the last platter, so Tony was starting to find his footing as an ivory tickler, and this is just becoming the way of the walk. But if you're looking for the heavy grooves, the stick in the mud churning, look no further than the massively underrated track that opens the second side, the thrill of it all. Jesus Christ, what a great line do you still believe in, man? You still get sprawling tempo changes, but you also get little ear candy like hand claps where you wouldn't have expected it. The new textures are doing the band a lot of favors, creating a multi-dimensional but increasingly powerful swath of tricks that can be pulled out of the bag at any point in time. I mean, who could have predicted that this album's traditional Iomi instrumental showcase would have a freaking choir on it this time around? And that instrumental. Well, is it fair to call Superzar? an instrumental because I guess the choir is there so there's vocalization but they're not actually saying any words but anyways that track there that would go on to be the walk on music for years worth of Black Sabbath shows as a matter of fact I don't know when it was retired but man it must have been way down the line based on bootlegs I've heard anyways of course every fan of this record will tell you that the 10 minute track called Megalomania is the epicenter of the record and hey look It is great. It's a straight-up journey. And the verses about the dual voices arguing with themselves and the lyrics are tremendous. Some even going as far as to say that this is the last truly great song of the first Sabbath era. I can agree on every one of those points except that it's the last great track they do with Ozzy. I mean, I love everything about the song Megalomania. I can play that sucker on a loop during long car drives, never get sick of it. But in my eyes... Y'all have been selling the real gem on Sabotage way too short for far too many years, and it's high time that we have a serious chat about it. Another nearly 10-minute epic, but this is easily the most autobiographical track they'd probably have done to date. First off... It's called The Writ, and remember what I was saying about all the subpoenas and the lawyers that were interrupting every move they would try to make to get this record done? Lyrically, this song takes shots at those who'd criticize the band for growing and changing as they matured as musicians. It calls out the former management, it calls out women who wanted to use them for money. It's a take no prisoners tour de force without question. You can hear the band using the studio as an instrument with the help of co-producer mike butcher but still grinding underneath the gloss but then just as quickly and unexpectedly And that's when The Rit drops down to a twinkling set of harpsichords, acoustic guitars, bells, xylophones, tasteful hi-hats, and potentially, potentially, the best vocal performance of Ozzy's tenure with the band to date. And hey, like I warned you in advance, like I said, it's pretty hard for me to be objective about this record. To these ears, it's the intersection of everything Black Sabbath had tried their hand at up until this point. And it's the highest of the high watermarks so far. Your mileage will vary, of course. And hey, even if you think I'm laying it on a bit thick with how magical sabotage is, you can't ignore that the promotional tour surrounding it didn't lead to some of the best goddamn stage banter of all time, right? Are you Somehow, they're firing on all cylinders while all of their worlds, individually and together, are all falling apart. It doesn't take a psychic to guess that things are going to get a little bumpy for a while. And by a little bumpy for a little while, I mean, like, for the foreseeable future. But hey, even a bumpy Sabbath is better than no Sabbath at all, isn't it? Besides, I got a bit of a pet theory I'm working on with this whole what is Black Sabbath chronological journey through the albums and I think that their next steps might actually be a bunch of beginnings rather than the endings that this period is sometimes looked at as. But we aren't there just yet. Yet we are at a period where Tony Iommi is getting increasingly comfortable spending a few months in a studio to make a really great record while to Ozzy, well he thought that Sabotage taking two months was an eternity so clearly a clash is coming. And controversially, this is where I believe Act 1 ends. And so does this episode of Discography. Don't worry, I'm going to show my work as far as why I believe Act 2 begins with Technical Ecstasy, which is the record we'll be kicking off with next week. Thank you so much for listening. If you're having a good time here, please, wherever you found this podcast, rate, review, tell a friend. We could use all the help we can get. If you're having a good time, please share that good time with others. Discography, I produce, engineer, I do all the writing, all the, you know, the whole shebang. But discography boss Cat Blackard is a very, very, very important component to the goings-on here, and they deserve a round of applause, even if I'm the only one clapping right now. But hey, we got a lot more ground to cover. This might be the shortest episode of discography that we've ever done, but that's because... As we go on, there's actually a lot more to say. See, think about the first six Sabbath records and try to come up with something that someone hasn't said before. But now think about all the ground we've got to cover and how much we don't know. I can't wait to see you next week, my friends. I'm Mark with a C. You've been a fantastic audience. And I'll see you next time, my friends. Background music by Chris Abriski. Learn more about him at ChrisAbriski.com.
2: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince.